Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And following a cyclist death on Sydney Road a few years ago, a bunch of government agencies, including Vic Roads and Morland Council, have been working with the community to find a way to improve safety at the city end of that pretty major shopping strip in Melbourne. Um, last month, this process reached a vote at Moreland Council, which supported a trial of one of the Vic Roads options, which would separate bikes from cars, widen the footpaths and introduce raised tram stops. And um, I suppose it's a bit similar to the end of uh, High Street Northcote, if you know that area. It would sort of funnel cars into a single lane, in this case shared with a tram though, and remove car parking to make all this possible. It's been controversial with traders in particular. And last week, a state government member from outside the area sought a guarantee from the Minister for Roads that the trial won't happen. So is it happening or isn't it happening? We don't know yet, but it's um, actually all pretty predictable, this kind of conflict, and it's played out all over the place where removing car parking um, has become an issue. And so we've turned to Associate Professor Dave Nichols. He's Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne. We like to throw kind of discussion topics like this at him when he pops by once a month here at Triple R. And hi, Dave. Hi, how's it going? What's the solution? (laughs) Um, <clears throat> the solution is uh, demolish Coburg and Brunswick, uh-huh. and uh, just you can go in any direction at any time. Just and drive and anywhere drive, and drive anywhere across it. Yeah, yeah. get rid of totally the grid as well. It. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, easy. Okay, see you. See you, see next you later. Month. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's there's an interesting a lot of you know it's interesting solutions, and I I did a little bit of looking at this whole business, but maybe we should give some some. Is there any more background from your point well, of view? Well, not really. Like, I just think it's it's interesting that, I mean, the, the local member in that area is Tim Reid, a Greens yeah. member, and mm. I, um, you know, he's been doing a lot of work surveying and Vic Rhodes has surveyed and yes. Moreland Council surveyed. So there's been a lot of work over several years now, mm. and I think – uh, the, the original goal, I think, was safety yeah. um, because you don't want people being, you know, car doored and knocked in front of a it's truck a and dying, right? So, happen. yeah, and it's a, it's yeah. a dangerous little strip and it sort of mm. does funnel from Royal Parade up and, you know, down. So, and it's a major shopping strip yeah. too, which is under pressure, yes. like a lot of shopping strips are. And so, you know, that area also has a lot of apartments and a lot of people that uh, are living there that, that, weren't living there before so it's a growing area on the Mm. you know around that you know right close to Carlton so there's this kind of um, a lot of change happening and how do you scale the use of that area Mm. and cater for everybody and I think that is a worthy thing to think about. You know I I often feel like I come on here and I don't quite rail against um, democracy but I do kind of say well, in a democracy, everybody has a say, and everybody, you know, everybody's opinion is valid, and everybody has a has a go. But this is one instance, and I and I guess I don't I don't come onto the grapevine with you know a big kind of um, you know wielding a big stick in favour of planning. But in this case, I think planning really should have been allowed over the last few decades to to have its way, if if we can put it that way, uh, because the, the Sydney Road Brunswick Coburg thing to me is is fascinating in that we have a whole lot of um, transport routes all going in the same direction, all roughly, you know, very close to each other, and everybody seems to want to get onto Sydney Road and, and ride their bike or drive their car on Sydney Road or park on Sydney Road. There's a huge amount of off, off-street parking, of course, off Sydney Road in the supermarkets in particular and behind a lot of other um, establishments there. But the um, there is also, uh, I don't know if anyone's noticed, but there's... Uh, a pretty mega railway line also running exactly the same route, basically half a block to the west of uh, Sydney Road itself. In uh, the late 80s, there was a proposal in the, in the dying days of the Kane government, um, state government, there was a, a proposal which got a reasonable way you know, into uh, um, being put into um, action, but it it was never you know there was a, there was a huge amount of resistance. A proposal to get the trams off Sydney Road and and turn the upfill line into light rail. I uh, did not know that. And it was it was talked about a lot, and so there was um, you know it would so what would that make Sydney Road a you know a very car oriented road, uh, and um, 
a, a lot more free-flowing traffic and so on. But um, at the time, it made a lot of sense because I think uh, the the tram that goes up Sydney Road was reasonably popular and used, but the railway line was not. I mean, it's it's there's an example of truly horrendous planning uh, where you run a you run those two modes of transport virtually side by side. So um, I think the upfield line might have had a little bit of um, uptake in in usage, not too much. I, mean, I know in the days of Kennet. When when they were building CityLink, there was you know the Kennet government was sort of going yeah so we're going to close the upfield line for a while shall we open it again or n- or nah you know um, and and obviously it, it was reopened uh, so there's so there's that whole story which people have said to me uh, conversationally that that was nixed but because the traders of Sydney Road were so against it I haven't actually been able they're to find they're against the tram being moved yes they they felt that it would take their you know a lot of their customers away Mm -hmm. uh just that little thing of like instead of uh i guess you wouldn't be taking the tram up sydney road and going oh yeah i need to go get some tomatoes you know because there's the tomato shop um so those those kinds of things I want to know where the tomato shop is. Like. There's, no, there's quite the a few there's, fruit and veg along yeah, yeah, there. Yeah, no, just, so. I just want a tomato shop. <laughs> yeah, you don't want, you don't want <laughs> the rest of it. You don't know where the tomato... Oh, it's a secret. Uh, um, I've got it's a drive A list. Uh, so uh, it's on a need-to-know basis, Dylan. Yeah. Um, so the... the so that, anyway, I was told com- conversationally that the traders were, were able to, you know, uh, thwart that as an idea. I mean, probably the demise of the actual... Um, the government in question probably thwarted it more. Uh, I certainly haven't seen any written evidence of of traders thwarting. But the traders are, you know, the traders are a strong group in in that on that road. And um, it's I know, a very old shopping strip. I know there. that the traders on their website claim at least one part of the website that it's the longest continuous shopping strip in the southern hemisphere, which is longest uh, as in distance, like as in length. Not yeah, longest not in, as in not, not the oldest, no. Yeah, okay. The longest, um, which... Longest in the sense of length. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and It is pretty long. Yeah, but it's it's four kilometres and it's not it's oh. not continuous and Glenferry Road's eight kilometres. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's not even the longest shopping strip in Melbourne, you know, let alone the Southern Hemisphere, which, you know. But um, This is why we get you in. To Fat first bubbles. That's right. yeah. uh, sorry, sorry to break everyone's illusions. But, but is, um, is there anything to the idea, though, that having a reduction in in parking on an arterial like Sydney Road would reduce the number of people going no, to look, shops? I mean, this is see, and this is where I'm sorry. I'm just going to go into my own personal experience. I would never go somewhere in Sydney Road. I would never go. I've got to go to the tomato shop. Um, maybe I'll get a park nearby on the road. That's you know, it's so unlikely that. There's some kind of there's some kind of aspirational illusion when it comes to the possibility of getting a park on Sydney Road. I mean, maybe at three in the morning, but I've got to tell you, the tomato shop's not open then. That's yeah. true. Which, which means you go somewhere for your tomatoes. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And so there's um, so there's there's that kind of that kind of aspect to it. That parking aspect, I think, is everyone wants a rock star park, park, but. I know. They're not well, for everybody. I remember there's a, there was some joke in Mad Magazine in the 60s about someone, you know, seeing a, a choice parking spot and just parking in it, even though they, you know, they were in a hurry to get somewhere else a long way away, <laughs> but just parking there because, you know, you'll never get that that kind of park ever again. That's what it's like, Sydney Road. Um, so there's, you know, it's a, it's a funny, it's a funny skinny little street and it's actually, you know, it's, do you know what? I, I actually just drove up half an hour ago and just thinking about what we talk about today and I thought one thing which wasn't necessarily on the agenda was, geez, it's ugly. It's a really ugly street. I know it's, you know, it's, it, you know, fit, aesthetically. There's yeah, I, see, I, really, I really love it, but maybe because uh, my, both my parents grew up in Coburg and we used to go there. You know, and so for me, it was like exciting yeah. to go from the suburbs was to that really? particular yeah, street yeah. and yeah. go to the um, the Turkish sure. restaurants oh. and things like that. So it, it's an exciting street. It's very but vibrant. If you just yeah, yeah and there's and a lot diverse. going on there. And I totally, I, I totally get that. But yeah. it's you know, I mean, at the moment, uh, you know, it's not a it's not a treat. It's not eye candy. You know, um, there are some great buildings in it, but it's it's a it's a horrible. You know, so anything that I think that takes away that kind of um, you know, car car based. You know, really scuzzy, grungy, not in a good way. Kind of um, aspect to it, I think, is is worth a go. So, do you think it's the cars that are making it scungy? 
Well, I do think that the that kind of it's being used for too many things. Mind you, you know. So yes, and parking is part of that. But I would also say that um, when it comes to the cycling issue, when it comes to the the right to cycle down Sydney Road, I'm not saying that you know everybody has that right. But there, once again, a la the railway line, there is a bike path very close by that. You know, is is actually a lot safer to travel on. It's true, but but turns out there's no shops on that bike path. So if you want to go shopping, you got to. If ride you want to go road, shopping, you've got to you've got to turn the corner at a, at a key intersection, you know, and ride another probably forty five seconds but, to get to the shops. I mean, I, I, you can understand shopkeepers being concerned about about change mm. because strip shopping has been, mm. of course, threatened in in recent times, and, yeah. and a lot of shopkeepers on Bridge Road and mm. um, you know, Ackland Street and places mm. that you know have seen a decline in in shoppers. I can understand them being concerned about their business model and whether it's working and what can be done to kind of rejuvenate a space. But this proposal is a trial, so yes. isn't there an argument for just seeing how it goes? If there are shoppers there, if there's a huge re- reduction, mm. then there's an issue. But why not try something to see I think what that, happens? I, I mean, I can, you know, I'll never, I'll never run a shop of any description at any time in my life. But I can imagine being somewhat concerned, a about, okay, so what if there's, if it's a trial of six months, my reduction in my profits over six months, that'll, that'll knock me out of the business, um, and. And also that, you know, yeah, they start. They say it's a trial and then, you know... Well, I was going to ask about this mm. because um, we've had trials on, you know, even more famous streets like Swanston Street, for instance, yes, heard, and yeah. that was a trial and, and then it went back to cars and then it went yeah. back to not cars. And, yeah. and so this idea of a, tr- a trial in inverted commas actually mm. is the change by stealth and it's never going back yes. and, and therefore it's just a way of getting it through. Is there evidence that we do that in Melbourne? That governments do that because, uh, you know that that's uncomfortable feeling that that feeling that you're suspicious that you're yeah. trying to get something yeah. through as a trial because then how can you ever really? It's like community consultation. If you don't really do it and you say you do, then no one mm. ever trusts it. So then mm. you can't consult properly. Mm. Therefore, mm. you can't ever have the change that might actually be better. I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah. No, look, I think that um, you know the, the nature of of the the trial idea is that. You know, it gives you it gives you a little bit of time to to live live amongst it and and in in the real world, and um, you know maybe maybe it will be declared an unmitigated disaster for everybody. Uh, I think that you know we have that extra complication, which is that um, there's some uh, overpass um, building, there's some there's some double crossing elimination going on. Oh yeah, uh, but that's uh, not the same area. It's further north. There's there's yeah. But there's, uh, you know, like these are one little thing you, you notice in, you know, um, in, if you know anything about traffic, i.e. by being in it or being a traffic engineer or reading about it, you know, one little thing changes everything. And um, suddenly, you know, um, as, as we know, any of us who have ever tried at walking or cycling or driving to, um, to deal with those moments when the gates fail on the, on the upfill line, um, you know, there's... It's just a, uh, it's it's hell for everybody. Uh, we should say it's uh, uh, Associate Professor Dave Nichols speaking to us. It's twenty seven minutes to ten. We're talking about a um, proposed trial to remove parking mm. and widen bike bike paths and so forth on the sort of south part, the city side of Sydney Road in Brunswick. It's been controversial. It may or may not go ahead. The Moreland Council wants it to go ahead. Uh, the state government said it won't happen certainly not when the level crossings are about to take place on the upfield line which is going to happen a bit further north but it really is growing pains isn't it these sorts of issues where it's not working now for whatever reason Mm. then how do you make it work without trying new things and then how do you keep adding people to an area and you need to cater for them don't you and if you don't then it's going to get worse and yeah it's just this sort of i agree I think that, and I think there are other things which I notice in the in the council uh, discussions of, of this stuff. There's someone, um, for instance, made a seemingly somewhat left of field uh, reference to uh, people spending too much money on their weddings, which I think was a oh, reference. Oh, a wedding to, strip there. There's a it's a wedding strip. Now I'm like working backwards and and only seeing that that remark and not necessarily any context for it. My feeling is, in some ways, it's saying, 
Yeah, if you if you historically, you know, for his, historic reasons, believe that Sydney Road is where you go to for your wedding stuff and and spending big on your on your wedding and going to the wedding, the bridal shops or whatever. Um, well, maybe you should start thinking. Maybe they should start thinking about relocating that, that kind of aspect of Sydney Road somewhere else, which I think is a. If that is if that is what was meant, that is actually uh, extremely controversial and well, there some are, might say offensive thing to say. There are culture wars that erupt around these things, though, exactly, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, you'd right. think removing car parking spaces would be pretty benign and uninteresting, yeah, yeah, but yeah. it really gets people going. Um, absolutely it does. People and get really judgy too because even when you were saying, well, why do people ride on Sydney Road rather than going on the bike path? It's like, Carly, well, I didn't use that tone of voice. But anyway, this idea of why are people making those choices? They shouldn't make those choices. They can make better choices. Um, it erupts with these sorts of proposals. Well, I think, you It's know, interesting. I'm, yes. I mean, uh, I, did, sadly, I shouldn't have put that voice on. Yeah. Sorry. We're all... <laughs> you work on it. Not fair. <laughs> <laughs> we're all judgy in various ways. I mean, I guess that's that's part, part and parcel. Why do the tram people catch the train anyway? Well, they should. <laughs> why, don't, why don't they? I don't know why they don't. They should. It's quicker. Well, the good thing is if your train gets cancelled on the upfield line, you can just walk half a block and get on the tram. That's right. See? This is this is the kind of luxury that people in that area of Melbourne live with. It's a, yes, it's a, it's a luxury, but it also I mean it's an impediment to to you know other other forms of transport, and you know it makes it makes it difficult to get around because there's those parallel uh, those two parallel public transport forms that, that run so close together. Is it interesting that that Vic Roads is right in this, mm. and mm. Uh, you know so Vic Roads is, you know, put up a whole bunch of options. It was option yes. three yeah. that was going to be trialled, which which expanded pedestrian um, walkways, uh, expanded the bike lane and kind of funnelled the car and the tram yeah. into the yeah. one line. Yeah. It was going to put in super stops so that people can access the tram because at the moment mm. that's really difficult for anyone mm. in, in a wheelchair or with mobility yeah. um, difficulties on that tra- tram line. Yeah. So it was their proposal and... The only way you could do that was to remove car parking on that on that That's sort correct. of part, uh, but it might not ever see the light of day. I mean, I think that they they were there was a bit of writing on the wall that said something like, you know, there's got to be the dis- disability access for the for the trams anyway, so um, there's going to have to be some changes made as is, and there's those questions of the the raised platform tram stops and those kinds of things. Um, I mean, I th- yes, look, there's so many things going on there. The the other aspect to it is um i I don't know how many people you know it's kind of crazy to to be doing it but i don't know how many people uh use uh sydney road as a as a way to get from a to b from you know for instance the city to um somewhere somewhere further beyond coburg i don't know how many people do that as part of a regular commute because it's um, you know they probably um haven't thought about it too much if they do that but nevertheless it's you know, it is one of those big roads that it doesn't just, you know, doesn't it goes end to in Sydney. a cul-de-sac. At, yeah, hypothetically, it does. Yeah, mm. um, and so there's so there's that aspect to it as well, which I, I guess, you know, if it, if you're driving to Sydney, it's really only the, the, the little bit at the beginning. Um, Sydney's not right now. So Sydney, what what's after Coburg? Sydney? I'm not sure. Yeah, it's, it's a longer <laughs> shopping street because of the way to Sydney. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So. Uh, big changes, I guess, afoot there, and it's a, it is, I would say, it's at least, you know, thirty or forty years of um, people scratching their head over how to deal with uh, that kind of a road or that road in particular, and never really uh, coming to agreement. Maybe there will be some agreement this time around. Uh, the, the, you know, the cycling thing in a way. I mean, the cycle, the cycle path idea. I think it's, you know, cyclists and. Um, you know, cycling organisations were consulted in this, and you know had had plenty of plenty to say about it. And and as I said before, not in any kind of tone of voice. You know, I totally support for what, who cares what I think, but totally support the the um, the right of cyclists to ride down Sydney Road. But um, in in one sense, I think Sydney Road is a bigger problem than than cars and mm. and uh, car parking and trams and you know it's all of those things contribute to the problem and also yeah i mean there are empty shops and the and it's it is kind of um going through a big change in uh, in in lots of ways that it's going to make it an interesting thing to to watch over 
over time. I don't think it's going to, um, you know, that might be a positive ultimately if if it kind of, if in some way it becomes a little down market in a, in a manner of speaking, if rents get cheaper or, or whatever, that could actually be a positive for the vibrancy of the place. But, you know, we shall see. Well, we've really added to the, <laughs> the controversy. I actually found did that we? really interesting. We did. Um, I learned a lot from you today, as always. And um, Dave will be back talking about something else um, in about a month or a month mm, and a half or something like that. A month and a half, something like that, yeah. Uh, we look forward to that. And um, thanks for coming by. My pleasure. A bit of background to our next uh, conversation. Uh, 40 years ago in the late 70s, Borroloola elders co-produced a landmark film to expose the threat to their homelands from mining development. Their country includes the MacArthur River in the Northern Territory, which runs into the Gulf of Carpentaria. And in 2019, the very same battle has reignited and a new documentary is screening at the Footscray Community Arts Centre. Tomorrow night, it's called... Called Warbada Bununu or Water Shield, and we've got the film's producer on the line. John Harvey is a filmmaker himself and creative director of Brown Cabs, and uh, it's really great to have you on Triple R, John. Welcome. Thanks, Carla. Thanks, Dylan. And that first film that uh, I alluded to was called Two Laws, and I wonder if you can take us back to the making of that, and we can kind of talk about how you've integrated the old parts of the old uh, film in this in this new one. Yeah, well, that, that film was um, made about 40 years ago and there were two filmmakers who went to the community and, and they shot it on film, um, which is pretty extraordinary because it's a massive drive from Sydney and, and then to carry that film stock all the way back. Um, but it was it was a groundbreaking film in the sense that it worked with the community to tell the story. It wasn't just filmmakers coming in and, and shooting it and the communities felt a really... Um, strong ownership of the film and the story and sharing their story and you know we we were fortunate enough that the um the filmmakers of that film allowed us to use the footage in in this film and it's and it's really interesting because you know young people look at that film and the elders talk to them and they were young people in that film about um I guess some of the issues there the fight and the struggle and you know many of those conversations are happening still today and so how did you come to be involved in this particular project? Yeah, the um, director, Jason DeSantelo, um, he's a, he, that's his mob from up there, um, and he's a filmmaker who I've known for a few years. And um, it came out of an initiative from Screen Australia um, um, called State of Alarm, and it was about looking at various issues, environmental issues affecting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities across Australia. So we did the film as part of that and, um, you know, working with Jason and and he's been working with his community within a storytelling and filmmaking context for, for a while as well and working around the issues of water contamination. Yeah, and it's, uh, I'm really interested in, I mean, obviously this has been an issue that's affected um, community from Burralula and, and surrounding areas for some time, but it's also in, in many ways quite a familiar story that, that many, I'm sure, Indigenous communities could relate to when there's mining and, and resources extraction and other kind of similar matters where the community is at the receiving end of that and often isn't you know properly consulted or informed of, of the dangers of what's going on there. But in relation to water contamination around Burralula, in particular, I mean, what effect has that had on people who who live on those lands? Yeah, so there's been water contamination in the um, Macarthur River there, which we talk about in the film, and you know that that's a very important river. It's important for story. It's important, um, you know, as, as a food source and um, people's connection with that river. And I guess the other thing about water contamination as well is it doesn't just all the water's connected. So the water's connected under, underground as well. And so that contamination, it spreads, you know, it spreads out underground and then, you know, it gets into the, the drinking water. And the thing with lead is that it's a slow, they call it a slow killer because it takes years and, you know, people start to then get effects of that. And so the community is really concerned about you know, are, are their children healthy? You know, are, are they the water they're drinking from the taps? Is it, you know, is it good water? And 
you know, it's they're really kind of serious issues for this community, but for for a lot of communities, like you say, for you know, when the when the mine was first started, that's forty years ago. You know, and that that mine has had several different companies who have held the lease for it and exchanged, and the mine's changed from an underground mine to an open cut mine within that time period as well. So, you know, I think this film really shows that things do change. You know, like people, you know, these kind of propositions, they're, they're long-term. They're extremely long-term and carry on from one generation to another. Um, and part of this film kind of, I guess, really demonstrates that. Yeah, and I, I suppose that that intergenerational nature of it is actually conveyed beautifully in this film because you can't help but feel feel in the the two laws um, documentary that was made in the late 70s and I think was released in 1981 the elders in that film highlighted their their enormous concerns uh, about the mind being you know on their country and what might happen from that and then 40 years later here is a new film, um, Wobada Bununu, featuring one of the grandchildren, uh, Scott Wood, um, Wajiki McDinney, who is finding that that damage has actually occurred. And so there is this actual connection between the films, but also between the uh, the generations who are sharing that same concern. It's, it's quite... Um, maybe talk about how the film's dealt with that and shown that connection actually in the way that you've shot, you know, it's been shot. Like we actually get some Super 8 footage, I think, as well within um, within the film. We do, we do. Um, our wonderful um, director of photography, Ryan Alexander-Lloyd, he had a Super 8 camera, so we, we took that and shot it. And, and part of Jason's thinking in that is, you know, time is a, is a linear thing. You know, and and you know these stories and connection with country that doesn't change with time. And I think you know the, one, one of the interesting things too that um, an elder from the community, Jack Green, says in the film is that um, you know, uh, like the community's always had the same story and same concerns about the effects of the mine on the commu- community, and with in terms of. Um, country and and um, the health of the country and, and story and what's happened like with the government the goalposts have always changed you know with the mine it's always changed and the story keeps changing and I think that that's a really interesting thing because what you have is a community that's trying to grapple with this massive thing that causes you know has an impact on the environment whether you like it or not it does have an impact it has an impact on people and and how do they deal with that and i think there's a real story in there for not just aboriginal and torres strait Islander communities but all kind of communities in australia you know like we, we live in a country that's rich in resources where people are trying to access that and communities small communities are grappling with what are the impacts of that you know we're seeing that with fracking as well and again on you know, the impact on water supplies and people's concerns about that. And I think this this is a really important film that helps to um, bring out some of those impacts, like looking down the future, you know, because, um, you know, the, the impacts are quite long. Yeah, it, it is. It is really interesting to think of it in, in those terms because, of course, there are connections with other areas in Australia that have, um, you know, where, where mines have been constructed and so on. And you know, the asbestos industry in Whitnoom, which has had really devastating results, particularly for the indigenous population around there. But when I was watching the film, I was also thinking about the United States and Flint, Michigan, and how kind of water contamination, um, you know, that sort of thing can really impact on people at the more disadvantaged end of the kind of, you know, social spectrum and and so on. But what's really interesting in the approach taken by the community members is this in this film is their um, the work that they're doing to uh, gather samples and and assess just you know to what extent contamination is happening when you know a mining company might be saying oh no it's not actually what we're doing it's just that some of the fittings might be old and so on. Can you talk us through that process and how their approach to this has kind of changed? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, what you've touched on there, Dylan, is the classic line of the mining company will say, we don't know, okay, yes, there's been some contamination in that water, but we don't know if that was caused by our actions because 
we don't have testing that was prior to us coming there. We don't have water testing, so we're unable to compare those, the, the data. And that's kind of a classic kind of line that, you know, tries to devoid people of taking responsibility. And, you know, it, it's... And, you know, I think what you see within here for... Um, for the community is that they want that information. You know, there is a distrust between the government and people who should be looking out for the interest and the public health interests of the community. And so you have the community wanting to go outside of that, I suppose, framework and form their own relationships um, to be able to test, test the water. And that's kind of the, I suppose, the next thing for us and, and, in, in terms of the work that Jason's doing with the community is, is looking at um, Scott, who's in the film, actually getting trained and doing that testing of the water. And I think that's, that's probably that kind of citizen sensing is a big thing probably for all communities. I think, you know, like, as you say, like, and across this country, there is just, there are similar complaints from the general community about how they're being treated within a process that involves large companies, large mines, and how they've been sort of pushed aside and they're not being heard by their government representatives. And and then also being told that same story of, well, we don't have the data of that beforehand. You know, with fracking, we've seen where, you know, the water's on fire, but there's no responsibility being taken because they don't have, they say they don't have the data. And I think that that's a really important thing for people, um, you know, be, you know, not not just within Borrowula, but, you know, communities more broadly. Well, we're speaking with um, producer John Harvey about a film, Warbada Bununu, a water shield, which really does it, um, tell an intergenerational story of um, a, a, a remote um, Indigenous community, but also, you know, living... Um, on their homeland and the impact from mining development over the past 40 years. And it's really interesting what you're saying there uh, about this basically a citizen science approach which has been taken and this sense of being on their own in this, that they have to collect baseline data, they have to prove over 12 months or whatever it might be, um, that longitudinal information um, they need to collect themselves in order to work out if their health, you know, how much their health is being affected is actually quite confronting isn't it when you think about it that uh, we have people in Australia that might be affected by um, you know lead poisoning or whatever it might be having to work out if they're affected by it themselves in order to maybe get some attention for their for their situation that's um, yeah a confronting story absolutely and I think the common thing is that and I, and I have this myself is that you have a general belief that somebody's looking out for you and somebody's looking out for your interest and your well-being, and and that's just the assumption that we go in on as citizens. Um, but that might not always be the case. And you know, I'm not saying that people are acting against you, but your interest may be overruled by another interest. Well, the Institute for Sustainable Futures. In this film, um, and we, we see Scott going and meeting with them, they're basically saying, look, the approach being taken now by communities is though this is kind of a, a widespread approach is to collect the data yourself, make the case yourself, prove it yourself, which, yeah, was I found that very confronting anyway. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's an interesting kind of proposition to think that, you know, that... You, you can have this so it's and that's something that Jason wanted to make in this film as well is to have a sense of empowerment he didn't want a film that was just about the mine and, and I think that's a really important thing about how people work in this space which I really kind of learnt from Jason and Scott and Gadrian and the elders up there because they've been doing this for years and years like part of it is about being active and keeping the mine and the government accountable and playing it, being in that space but it's also you have to keep your home fires burning you know you can't have all of your energy going out and focused on them and not look behind you to keep your home fires burning and that's I think a really amazing thing that um, that community does very well you know they, they focus on their story on their culture on passing that down you know that's them as who they are and who they are as people and, 
and to hold that is a really um really interesting thing you know because often it, it could be quite easy to just commit a hundred percent of their energy into the mine um but as you see that, that that's a journey that just keeps going for decades and decades and will continue going for that you know so long as the mine's profitable for a company yeah that, that was really apparent even in the work that they're doing now to collect those samples and have them tested and so on is that they're doing so by using um, you know traditional names for places and that kind of thing not using imported white sort of western names for the places that they're gathering water and and um, get samples from yeah that's right that's right and, and it's it's that thing of sort of I guess that what that two laws touches on too is that there's kind of two frames of 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 thought of law of being in the world that are coming together and you know and and the black law what um jack green says is always the same it doesn't change it's always the same and his frustrations is with the white law it always changes the legislation changes it keeps moving the goalposts and that's you know that's really apparent yeah, and the mine has changed hands too. It was Mount Ida Mining and Extrata, I think, and now Glencore owns the mine on that country. But what now with the film? So you've got a screening happening at uh, Footscray Community Arts Centre tomorrow night. Um, people can go and see Wobbita, Bununu or Watershield. Uh, and it's it's screened at the Sydney Film Festival where I, I understand um, Two Laws also screened. So it's it's been seen widely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We're definitely um, it's screening um, at festivals at the moment. It's it's been touring across New Zealand as part of the Dock Edge Film Festival over there. Um, and so at the moment we're we're getting the film out through to festivals and also hosting these community screenings. We'll do a screening also in Brisbane on the weekend that Scott and Gadrian from the film will attend. Um, and for us, it's about it's about getting the word out about the issue in this community, but also um, using it as a resource with other communities who are facing similar issues. You know, it doesn't have to be the same kind of mining as, you know, that um, Borrelula is facing, but it, it could be in fracking. But they're, they're all related kind of issues, I guess. Um, so, yeah, that, that's kind of our... Um, kind of path with the film and it'll also be screened on NITV um, I think next year. Yeah, fantastic. And um, just in the very brief time we have left, John, I mean, you are involved in so many fascinating projects through Ground Cabs, uh, Brown Cabs, sorry, productions. Um, I noticed you've got another project that I think's uh, going to be um, screening on, on the web soon, a Kutcher's Carpool Karaoke. Can you tell us about that? It sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a project I'm doing with Kutcher Edwards, um, who's a Muddy Muddy songman. And I, I wanted to do something with him for ages, and he had this idea, you know, like James Corden's, you know, couple karaoke. And, you know, he said, wouldn't it be great to do that with, with our community in Fitzroy? And, you know, Fitzroy has such a strong connection with the um, Koori community, not just in Victoria, but it's actually a really important place across the country, you know, in terms of the health services there, the legal services set up. So we've got um, a number of artists involved. We've got four episodes um, that'll get launched in October. Um, And we have Archie Roach, uh, Dan Sultan. uh, We have Alice Skye and Emily Warramara in one app and um, Legends Bonalori and Bart Willoughby and then we have Uncle Jack of course who, who catches a lift with them he just happens <laughs> to be hanging out on the sh- street and he catches a lift with Quitcher and whoever's in the car um, but it's a really great show because it's kind of it's about music place people and connection and it's just that feeling of uh, Fitzroy really in the community and I think you know the wonderful thing about the show too is how music has played not just an important role for the artists in their lives, but for us as a community as well, you know, and it's kind of these anthems of our community, you know, that have been um, played widely. I think we're going to hear a bit more about that on Triple uh, R in the coming <laughs> weeks. Like <laughs> I'm sure um, all of those people that you mentioned um, have been through these studios over the years many times. So, um, yeah, very much looking forward to that. So how do we catch that? Show? Yeah, so that'll be from the um, October, and the best way to to 
follow it is to join our Facebook page, Kutch's Carpool Karaoke okay. on Facebook. Um, and we'll be posting on that when we launch it. And it'll be early October. Very much looking forward to that. You know, develop a sense of community around it. It's a really fun series and, yeah, great to celebrate. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today, um, John. All the best with uh, the other film we've been speaking about, um, Wobbera Bununo, uh, Water Shield. Uh, sounds like people can what hit your website there and, and um, is it Brown Cabs they should head to to find out where they Brown can see cabs. that? Yeah, yeah. or they can see um, Water Shield film as well to, to see the um, about Wobbera Bununo. Uh, yeah, all the best with it and um, thanks so much for spending so much time with us on Triple R. Great, thank you. And a couple of sobering stats to introduce our next conversation about Victoria's incarceration crisis. Right now, Victoria is imprisoning a greater proportion of the adult population than at any point since 1899. And of this prison population, two out of every five are on remand. So they're being held ahead of their matter being heard. This situation is of great concern to Deputy Dean of the School of Law at Deakin University, Marilyn McMahon, who joins us by phone right now. Um, Thanks for being with us, Marilyn. Good morning. And I just mentioned um, some of those stats from your uh, article in The Conversation, and um, you also write that we've just opened a new prison, Ravenhall, but uh, the prison population is growing so fast, we're also looking at prefab cells. Um, Maybe tell us what this overcrowding or this kind of prison population um, growth is is doing to our, our current system. Well, there's an interesting observation that we're now going through the second convict stage in Australia because imprisonment numbers are going up so much. And so we see that in Victoria. We had a new prison built in 2017 already just two years later, we've now had the Premier saying that we have to put prefabricated cells inside our existing prisons because we can't house the number of prisoners that are coming in. There's another prison being, um, you know, in the pipeline. We've got an anticipated, I think it's by 2023, we anticipate there'll be another 3,000 prisoners over the existing 8,000 in Victoria. So these numbers keep on growing and therefore the need for prisons keeps on growing. We're spending a fortune on our prisons and really we're you know, in a state of crisis. And despite some kind of sensationalised media coverage, we hear that instances of crime and, and particular crimes have actually been declining for some time. So why is it that we're seeing our numbers of people in our prisons um, swelling so substantially? I think you've really addressed one of the key issues there. A recent survey indicated that in Australia, fear of crime, the highest you know, reported opinions and attitudes in relation to identifying crime as the number one concern, comes from Victoria. A recent poll indicated that about 40% of Victorians identified crime as their greatest worry. So anyone who wants to move away from law and order politics really has to address that residual fear. I think the problem we have is that we're putting more people in prison and my particular interest, we're putting people in prison before their trials. So at a time really when they're legally presumed to be innocent, that's where the explosion in the prison population has occurred. And that's, I think, where we need to have a major intervention to reduce the current trend. And that seems to really run against the ethos of our criminal justice system, that you're innocent uh, until proven guilty. So are we kind of using the function of bail and someone in a different way than we have been previously? Sure. I think there's no doubt that in Australia today, not in particularly Victoria and New South Wales, bail or the refusal of bail is being used as a crime prevention technique. Historically or traditionally, bail really was all about, you know, you denied bail to someone if you thought that they would flee the jurisdiction, if they wouldn't turn up for the hearing of their matter further down the track. But what we see increasingly, and it's a trend I think that's been happening for more than a decade, is that bail is being used for crime prevention. We're really asking, is this person likely to commit a crime if they're released on bail? We're taking a very conservative stance. So if we are at all concerned, then there's an increased likelihood that that person will be put in prison before the hearing of their matter. And that, I think, is really a fundamental transformation in bail 
that has underpinned the massive increase in uh, the number of people being held on remand in Victoria and elsewhere in Australia. And so was that actually a formal change, Marilyn, that we that that the way that we use bail and the way I suppose in in that way that we made a choice that we wanted to go that down that path or are those that are responsible for making decisions around bail really conscious that uh, uh, those people who offend while on bail there's been some high profile cases where that's been you know seen as preventable the crime that comes from that therefore they don't want to take the risk like is that just been an accidental thing or formal that change I think it's both been formal and informal, Carlia. I think that we had a series of crimes, really high-profile, heinous crimes. You know, when Adrian Bailey raped and murdered Jill Maher, he was on bail at the time. Um, when James Gargazoulis killed those people in Bourke Street and injured so many more, he was on bail at the time. So what we saw, I think, was that bail decision-makers, police, magistrates, were becoming more conservative because no-one wanted to be the person that were, you know, will allow the next Adrian Bailey back on the streets on bail. So we had that occurring, if you like, at an informal or cultural, the culture in relation to bail changed. And then in 2017, 2018, following the Coglin review into bail in Victoria, we had the law changed. And it's my view that the way the law is currently written, community protection is the most important factor in determining bail and that is a significant change. We're speaking with Marilyn McMahon, the Deputy Dean of the School of Law at Deakin University, all about Victorians' incarceration crisis. Marilyn's written a really interesting and informative piece for the conversation on this very matter. And it's interesting to be having this conversation at a time where there has been a a successful campaign to change um, the public drunkenness law here in Victoria. So that instance, I think, is is an example of, uh, you know, something that that a large section of people saw as as a problematic law we had in place that's led to some kind of change. Do you feel like there's an appetite at all for looking at this issue and, and how we can reduce the over-incarceration people in Victoria, given that there have been some changes such as that example? Look, I think there is a way in, and I think that even people who have a conservative or a law and order view of the you know, criminal justice system would now recognise we are spending a fortune on our prison system. I think it's currently about $1.8 billion a year. And a significant portion of money is being spent detaining people who are on remand. It's not, we're not just holding on remand people who are really serious offenders. We've, I think, adopted too much of a broad brush approach and we're carrying in or trapping in a range of people who shouldn't be held there. So I think that concern about cost, I think that concern about the burgeoning prison numbers and this constant need to be building more prisons to house them is a significant point of intervention. I think the appetite perhaps uh, for keeping people who are low-level offenders out of prison on remand and generally is there, and as you've mentioned, the decriminalisation of public drunkenness is part of that. Another step that we could take is really, as Justice Coghlan recommended, to take a whole range of minor, non-violent offences, non-sexual offences, out of any consideration of bail. And so we wouldn't start the process where the police considered them for bail. Um, people might just get something akin to a parking ticket, you know, a notice to appear, something like that, telling them they had to appear in court on a particular day rather than arrest and then the whole process of bail afterwards. So I think there, you know, I, I hope there's an appetite for reform. It's really interesting you say that about, you know, parking ticket or the like because you write that uh, women more so than men are denied bail and I'm interested in that because, I mean, we know that um, women in general, um, even as families change, are often primary carers of children and the like so there's this ripple effect when um, people are held on, on remand. Absolutely, and it's very unfortunate that women have relatively high rates of remand. I think what we're looking at there is not that we're not remanding those women because we're concerned about them being violent offenders. Typically, they commit drug and burglary offences. 
Um, but what we're doing is essentially criminalising a welfare problem. These women often have problems of addiction, problems of homelessness. We know from research that's been done in Victoria that that's true. So really, we have a feel like a welfare problem that we need to address, particularly with relation to those two issues, rather than incarcerate those women. And I mean, when you speak to people, law reformers and the like, um, your colleagues, people um, in police and so forth, do people have sympathy with this viewpoint that you're putting forward, Marilyn? Or is it something that is kind of like, oh, you know, it needs to be like this for this reason? I mean, what's the kind of response that you generally get? I think it's really difficult in Victoria because those three heinous crimes that we had committed by people on bail, you know, the killing of Jill Maher, the killing of Masa Vukotic and the uh, Burke Street killings really dominate people's consciousness and have made them very, very conservative about releasing people on bail. I think what we have to emphasise is it's not about releasing people like that. No one wants people are going to commit very serious crimes if released on bail, released back into the community. But the approach that we've adopted at the moment is capturing far too many people, putting them in prison even for brief periods of time. But that has really counterproductive effects further down the track. And as you've pointed out, particularly in relation to women, it disrupts family relationships. People can lose their job when they go to jail, makes them harder to consult with lawyers about their case. Most troublesome, I think, is research coming out of the United States that indicates even if you put people in prison for short periods of time before their trial, the long-term consequences, if you like downstream effects, is they're more likely to commit an offence in the future. So there are a range of negatives associated with putting people in prison before their trial. And when we consider the best way of tackling community safety, I think we should put all those matters into consideration. And just to cycle back finally, Marilyn, to to a point we were talking about earlier in relation to the public perception of law and order issues, do you think that the fact that there is political currency in these matters means that it will continue to to become an issue that governments or, or, you know, opposition parties as well are a little bit scared to properly tackle, even when there is an evidence base for, for some potential solutions? Absolutely. I think that an evidence-based argument is one thing, but you know, I'm realistic to note that that's not going to carry the day because law reform, practical law reform through our parliament requires the belief of politicians that they have community support for it. So I'm hoping that we have general discussion. We now see some of the consequences that flow through some of the case studies of people who've been denied bail and who've gone to prison and the adverse consequences. So we balance out the equation a bit more. We're not dominated solely by those heinous cases, but we begin to see the human side of people who really have been detained pre-trial when they shouldn't have been. Well, thank you for being so articulate this morning about this, and it's um, been really good to have you on the show. Thanks, Marilyn. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.